Thanks, Karen. Thanks, ladies, for sharing your praises with us. Thanks, LaMonica. She's a special friend of mine. She's taught me much about trusting God and praising Him in the good times and the bad. If you don't know, LaMonica, stop and get to know her today. Okay, welcome back to Women in the Word. I'm Shelley Davis, and I'm standing in a hole. Just a minute. Move over. Not going to be a good thing here. Uh, I'm Shelley Davis. If you're new to Women's Bible Study today, we are very glad that you're here. We want you to feel comfortable. We want you to make some new friends, and we want you to study the Word of God with us. Last week, we talked about the truth, and everyone should have verses and outlines. If you don't have verses and outlines, raise your hand. They're bringing them around right now as we speak. Last week we talked about the truth and it reminded me that I had gotten an email the week before called The Truth About Cats and Dogs. Now I don't have any grandchildren yet, but I do have grand dogs. How many of you have grand dogs? If you do, you'll know exactly. It's a phenomena of uh, the postmodern generation, I think, that we all have grand dogs. And the grand dogs spent... Um, a fair amount of time with me this summer. I, had a, I have six grand dogs, and they kind of came and went all, all summer long. And one of the grand dogs found a just-born abandoned litter of kittens in the flower bed. So then I had the grand dogs, and I had the litter of kittens to feed every four hours for the rest of the summer. So you can see why when I got an email that said the truth about cats and dogs, it spoke to my heart because that's what I'd done all summer. So let me read it to you. It says, what is a cat? Cats do what they want. They rarely listen to you. They're totally unpredictable. They whine when they are not happy. When you want to play, they want to be alone. When you want to be alone, they want to play. They expect you to cater to their every whim. They're moody. They leave their hair everywhere. They drive you nuts and cost you an arm and a leg. So conclusion, what is a cat? They're tiny women in cheap fur coats. (laughs) So the next one is, what is a dog? Dogs lie around all day, sprawled on the most expensive piece of furniture in the house. They can hear a package of food opening half a block away, but don't hear you when you're in the same room. They can look dumb and lovable all at the same time. They growl under their breath when they're unhappy. When you want to play, they want to play. When you want to be alone, they want to play. They are great at begging for things they don't need and shouldn't have. They will love you forever if you rub their tummies. They leave their toys everywhere. They eat disgusting things and then try to give you a kiss. <laughs> Conclusion, what is a dog? They're tiny men in cheap fur coats. Uh, yeah. I had to say I didn't disagree with any of that. It was great. It was great. Okay, so we're back this week continuing our study of the 12 disciples, and this is our final week to take a look at John. We discovered last week that John had a love story with the truth that was actually one of the hallmarks of his entire life. It was pursuing the truth that brought John face to face with Jesus, and it changed his life. It changed his life direction, it changed his life purpose, and certainly it changed his selfish, ambitious heart. This week, 
we're going to talk about the most significant life-changing truth that John discovered after he came face-to-face with Jesus. And it's from John himself in his very own gospel that we discover what that truth actually is. On your verse sheet, John 13, 23 says, One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. And John 21, 7, Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord. As a disciple of Jesus, John discovered the greatest truth of all, and this is on your outline, the truth that Jesus loved him. Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus, God in the flesh, loved John. As a result of Jesus' love for John, John becomes God's mouthpiece for love in the New Testament. He uses the word love over 80 times in his writings, and he teaches us throughout the Gospel of John and in his epistles what God's love really is. It's not what we people think, what us as human beings think love is. Remember that whole love means never having to say you're sorry. Or even six weeks on a TV show called The Bachelor that's going to bring us true love for the rest of our life. But John discovers love as God meant it to be, as God created it, as God lived it in the flesh, and as God desires each one of us to have every day of our life. There's a great book written by a man named Herbert Locklear about all of the disciples, and this is what Herbert Locklear says in his book about John. In his gospel and in his epistles, John gave the world a definition of love not to be found in the writings of any other author, secular or religious. And such a declaration of love could only have been learned from close personal contact with the lover of mankind himself. Whatever John knew about love, he learned it from Jesus, and it captivated him for the rest of his life. But if we look at John, the John we've been studying for the last few weeks, if we look at John before he discovered the whole truth that Jesus loved him, we see that John is actually not a very compassionate or loving man by nature. He is the son of thunder that we have discovered and talked about. He was a a zealous and a booming kind of a take-that kind of man. He was not a guy prone to what Paul describes as love in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrong. That was not the John that Jesus met by the Sea of Galilee. In fact, when we talked about James and John three weeks ago, we had a great example of John's unloving ways that we studied when the Samaritans did not want to welcome Jesus to their village as he journeyed to Jerusalem. John didn't want to show him love. That wasn't his thought. John wanted to incinerate them, if you'll remember. Luke 9:54 on your verse sheet says, When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? I don't think the Samaritans are really feeling the love here from John. And there's one place in the Synoptic Gospels, it's the only place where John speaks by himself in Acts alone, and we don't feel the love from John there either. Mark 9, 38 through 41 on your verse sheet. Teachers said, John, 
We saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. And Jesus says, Do not stop him, Jesus said. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me, for whatever is not against us is for us. John was not a man who understood love or displayed love to those around him before the truth of Jesus' love changed his life. He was a man who was easily angered. He was often self-serving and rude, and certainly we've seen that he was envious and he was proud, all rolled into one. And yet, it's that same John that writes these words in 1 John 3.18. Dear children, let us not love with words and tongues, but with actions and truth. And 1 John 4.11. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. So how did John go from calling fire down from heaven to incinerating uh, incinerating people to imploring us to love one another with actions and in, and in truth. From being the son of thunder that's to being portrayed for centuries, if you read much in the literature about John, every now and then he's portrayed as this soft-spoken, gentle, loving kind of man. And in fact, if you know much about the Da Vinci Code, you'll know that's a little bit of where the controversy um, of where Dan Brown got all of that in the Da Vinci Code because of the portrait, Da Vinci's portrait of the Last Supper. John, who's next to Jesus, is portrayed with this effeminate look to his character, that soft, loving kind of guy. Because of that, Dan Brown has this whole premise that it was really Mary Magdalene and all of, all of that. John was portrayed as this soft, effeminate guy based on his writings in the gospel which give us a true picture of God's love, but not a true picture of really who John was. In spite of his writings about God's love, John is not a soft, touchy-feely kind of guy. So how did he transform his life from rude, bold, impetuous to a man that says, Dear friends, love one another. Dear children, love with actions and in truth. Well, the good news for us is the scriptures actually chronicle John's journey for us, and at the heart of it, is his discovery that Jesus loved him. The truth of Jesus' love did not unfold for John immediately as he answered Jesus' call to follow him. It was a process of discovery for John, a process that started by the Sea of Galilee and continued throughout John's life. Now, last week I told you about that book I read when I was a freshman in college, the infamous love story and the love means never having to say you're sorry, the fact that that was an untruth that was never going to further anyone's love life. It doesn't build your relationships. In fact, it probably actually harms them. Fortunately for me, I read another book some years later, a better book on love. It wasn't a fiction book. It's actually a a Christian book. And this one is a great book on relationships and how to build our relationships and, and encourage the people around us to feel loved. And it is Gary Chapman's Five Love Languages. I know many of you have probably read it. If you've never read Gary Chapman's Five Love Languages, you might want to jot that down and someday read it. Gary Chapman in his book talks about how we all have an emotional need to be loved, and he describes it as a tank that's on the inside of each one of us. He says that children have these love tanks and adults have these love tanks. 
Through Dr. Chapman's 30 years of research, he's discovered what he believes are five emotional love languages or the ways that we as people give love and receive love. And he believes, if you read his book, he says that we all have one primary love language and that when someone speaks that love language to us, it begins to fill up our love tank. And we begin to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are loved by that person. Now, this was actually a very good book for me to read because, as you all know, I had these three dirty, grimy little boys that were like aliens from outer space. How does anyone ever figure out how to love this little, dirty, grimy little boy whose first word is a ball and whose second word is video game? Now, how do you, how do you get your arms around that? I mean, they don't want you kissing them. Um, they don't want you making a big fuss if they get knocked flat on the little league field. That was the big rule in my household. No matter what happens to them, no matter how many arms or legs are laying out there, I am not to leave the stands. I'm to sit there. I'm to sit there. The coach can go out. The dad can go out. The mother never goes on the baseball field. That's some rule written somewhere. Certainly they don't want you crying over them. And they don't want you tagging along, talking about their feelings when they're going out to the flower bed to burn bugs with a microscope, (laughs) with a magnifying glass. Well, the five love languages that were in Gary Chapman's book helped me to discover that I had one who wanted quality time, one who wanted words of affirmation, and one who wanted gifts and physical touch, hugs when no one was around. That was... um, what I found out. And putting that right love language with every boy eventually helped me fill up their love tanks and let them know with beyond a shadow of a doubt that on any given day they knew in their hearts their mom loved them. Now Jesus, as God in the flesh, had some insight into love and the love languages that I didn't. And after all, he was the perfect embodiment of love. And with that love, with that supernatural insight into love, Jesus knew that John did not know the love of God. And he did not feel particularly loved by God. As a Jewish man, he knew a lot about God and a lot about the laws that God had given them. But he did not know the deep love of God that changes men's hearts. John did not know that God loved him. It was a thought he had never had. And actually, as we look at John, it shows in his life. It shows in his interactions with others. It shows in his harshness. It shows in his desire to punish those that don't get it right. If they don't welcome Jesus, then we punish them with fire from heaven. If they're not part of our sect or cult, we tell them to stop. John's love tank, when it came to God, was definitely on empty. But from the moment that John stepped out of his boat by the uh, Sea of Galilee, Jesus began to speak all five of the love languages to John. 1 John 4:19 says, "We love because he first loved us." From the beginning of Jesus' relationship with John, we can actually see him using the love language of quality time. He speaks that to John day in and day out in their relationship. Jesus not only begins his relationship with John by spending time with him, he continues it throughout his time on earth. John had personal access to Jesus day and night. He had time with him whenever he needed or wanted. And even more than that, Jesus 
focused on John, focused on teaching him and molding his character. It was quality time, not just passing the time together. Last week we talked about the seven miracles that are the hallmark of John's gospel that record the de- John's witness to the deity of Christ. It was not a random occurrence that John happened to be with Jesus. It was intentional quality time. John was there when Jesus turned the water into wine at the wedding. He was there when Jesus healed the official son at Capernaum. He was there when Jesus fed the 5,000, walked on the water, and raised Lazarus from the dead. Every moment Jesus was with John, he was investing in him emotionally. He was teaching him. He was talking to him. He was looking into John's eyes and opening his heart to the love of God. Those intentional moments spoke to John's heart of Jesus' love for him. First John 4, 9 on your sheet says, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. God's plan was that we would have time, personal time, with Jesus himself. On your outline, John discovered John's, God's love through Jesus' time with him. John also discovered God's love through Jesus' physical touch in his life. The scriptures give us several great examples of Jesus' willingness to touch people physically during his time on earth. He was not afraid to touch those that need to be healed. We saw that in our homework as he made the clay with his own saliva and touched the blind man's face and healed him. We've seen it. When we talk about the um, lepers, if you know the story of him healing the lepers, he was not afraid to touch the lepers. And he was never afraid to touch those that needed to be loved. We have an example of that in Mark 10. Get out your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 10. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The second gospel in the New Testament. Mark 10, verse 13. People were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked him. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, put his hands on them, and blessed them. Jesus was never afraid to show his love by physical touch. And John was no exception to that rule for Jesus. As Jesus reclines at the last meal that he is going to have on this earth, feeling the heaviness of what he knows is going to happen when he gets up from that table and leaves the meal, he does not withdraw from the touch of those around him. In fact, he has just touched all of them. He's washed their feet. He's touched them in an intimate and personal way. And he's not thinking of the hours to come, but he's thinking of making sure that John feels his love, his closeness to Jesus in these last hours that he has with him through his physical touch. John 13, 23. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. That was John, leaning and reclining right next to Jesus, leaning against his chest. In his book, Love Languages, Gary Chapman says it's physical touch that can actually make or break any relationship. 
A physical slap communicates hate. A tender hug communicates love. As John reclines against Jesus, it's obvious that Jesus wants to communicate his great love to John before he goes to the cross. He wants John at their last meal together to have no doubt about the closeness that exists between he and Jesus. And the message is never lost on John. It fills his heart. On your outline, John discovered the truth of God's love through the affection of Jesus' physical touch in his life. But one of the most powerful conveyors of love in all of our lives, however, is words. Just as the touch of others can harm us or endear us, so can the words that people say to us. They can harm us or endear us if the people are important in our lives. We've already looked in the last couple of weeks at the rebukes that Jesus has so tenderly and carefully given John. They were necessary and they were important. But it's actually Jesus' words of affirmation in his life that begin to convince John of the truth that he was the disciple Jesus loved. John records these words of affirmation that Jesus spoke to him and the others before going to the cross. This is just a sample of Jesus' affirming words. John 15, 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. John 15, 15. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father... I have made known to you. And John 16, 27, Know the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and believed that I came from God. Jesus often gave John and the other apostles words of affirmation while he was with them. Affirmation of his love, of his friendship, of their walk with him and their belief in who he was. But the greatest affirmation that Jesus gives John is at the foot of the cross. Flip over with me in your Bibles to John 19. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Chapter 19, verse 25. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, Here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. My personal belief is that it was at this moment that John first began to comprehend what it really was to be loved by God and to first grasp the true depth of Jesus' love for him. He still did not understand as he stood at the foot of the cross watching Jesus hang there. John still did not understand that Jesus was actually dying at that moment for his sins. Later, it was going to make sense to John. But these words of affirmation where Jesus was trusting him and essentially saying to John, you are the one I trust with my very own mother. You are the one that I love so deeply that when I'm gone, I want her to call you son. These words went to the depths of John's heart, and without a doubt, as he stood there, and he looked at Jesus, and then he looked at Mary, and he took those words in. The realization of Jesus' love dawned on him as it never had before. On your outline, John discovered the truth 
of God's love through Jesus' words of affirmation. Because God is perfect, he has the ability to love us perfectly. In the book Love Languages, you'll read that we all have one primary love language, but because God loves us perfectly, we see that Jesus does not just love John with one love language, or even two or three. Jesus speaks all the love languages to John, and the next one that we see Jesus speaking to John is acts of service. We have to remember, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about John's worst moment in the scriptures where he and James go to Jesus and they ask for greatness. They ask to be elevated to a position of honor when he comes into his kingdom. And Jesus, in teaching them very tenderly after that uh, prideful request, self-serving request on their part, he teaches them very tenderly that True greatness doesn't come from sitting next to the king on his throne. It doesn't come from making others your slave. It comes from serving others. And then he tells them in that passage in Mark chapter 10 that even he, the Son of God, has come to serve, not be served. Well, we're going to see that Jesus puts shoe leather on that statement in John 13 when he, the Master, washes the feet of those that he loves. John writes these words on your verse sheet just before Jesus washes all of their feet. John 13, 1, he records this. Having loved his own, meaning the disciples who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. And then John writes this as soon as Jesus finishes washing their feet. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? No, John didn't really understand what Jesus had done for him. It was only going to be later that the magnitude of that act of service really hit him. The example he was giving them, the humility he was modeling, even though he was the Son of God. What I think John recalled with astonishment later was the love that he felt as Jesus, God in the flesh, knelt at his feet and personally and tenderly washed his feet, performing that very personal need. This personal act of service, usually performed by a servant, forever spoke to John's heart. I think he remembers it. That's what he's thinking about when he writes those scriptures that we read earlier. Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. I think he recalls Jesus kneeling at his feet, drying his feet when he writes, Dear friends, since God so loved us, let us love one another. This was an act of service done in the truth of servanthood that helped John discover the depths of God's true love for him. On your outline, John discovered the truth of God's love through Jesus' act of service. Now, I know there are some of you out there whose primary love language is gifts. I happen to be, it happens to be one of my love languages is gifts. And those of us that have the love language of gifts understand that it's not the expense of any gift that matters. A gift makes you feel loved because it's something you can hold in your hand and know that someone has thought of you. The gift is a symbol of that thought, and it never matters whether it costs money or not. The final way that Jesus spoke John's love language was with a gift 
that did not cost Jesus any money, but it cost him his life. 1 John 3, 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And John, 1 John 4, 10. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus spoke John's most important love language as he gave him the free gift of eternal life by, coming his, by becoming his sin substitute for John's own sin. Last week we saw John at the empty tomb realizing the truth that Jesus had indeed risen from the dead like he said that he would. This week we see John discover the greatest truth. Jesus was indeed the Lamb of God that he had heard John the Baptist call out two and a half years earlier. Jesus was the Lamb that had been slain for his sins, for the sins of the world. Jesus had come to give John the gift of eternal life, and if John's life was a MasterCard commercial, this is what we would see on the TV screen. We would see giving up successful fishing business, 1,500 denarii, traveling for three years, night and day, with 12 men, 75 denarii, the gift of eternal life, priceless, priceless. When the truth of Jesus' priceless gift finally overtook John's heart, it convinced him beyond a shadow of a doubt of one thing. Jesus loved him. Now, when you read very much about John's life, all these different authors, and I've read a lot of them over the past few months, many of them say John had a special relationship with Jesus or that John was closer to Jesus than the other apostles. And that's why John uses this expression, the disciple Jesus loved. In fact, I just read someone yesterday that wrote that the reason James, John, and Peter were the inner circle of Jesus' um, 12 disciples was because Jesus knew James would be the first one to be martyred, and Jesus knew that Peter would be the leader of the apostles in the New Testament church, and that Jesus had a special bond with John. And all of that may be true, and none of it may be true. That is the opinion of this one author. But when I studied John, I came to believe that John simply spoke of himself as the one Jesus loved, because that's the way he felt. As a result of all of these things that we talked about, the time spent with Jesus, his personal touch, his words of affirmation, the humble acts of service, and the priceless gift of eternal life. As a result of all these love languages being spoken to John by God himself, it was simply how he felt. Jesus loved him. He felt it and he understood it. And for the rest of his life, John was content to be nothing more and nothing less than the disciple Jesus loved. At the end of the day, it wasn't that John was closer to Jesus than the others or had a stronger bond with Jesus. It was simply that John's heart got it. John got Jesus, and he got what Jesus had done for him. And because of that, he was the disciple Jesus loved. Now John went on to live out his life to an incredibly old age. And church tradition has it that after he moved to Ephesus, he became the pastor of the church that Paul actually founded at Ephesus. 
And it was while he lived at Ephesus, there was a great persecution by the Roman leaders of the church, and John was banished to a prison community on Patmos, which is an island off the western coast of Turkey. He lived in a cave under deplorable conditions for an old man. He was cut off from those he loved. He was made to sleep on a stone slab with a rock for a pillow. But he remained the disciple Jesus loved. God had not forgotten him because it was while he was in that cave on Patmos that he received the revelation of Jesus Christ. And this is something that he writes in the opening chapter of Revelation, Revelation 1-9. I, John, your brother and companion in suffering and kingdom and patient endurance, there ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Because his heart knows that he is the disciple Jesus loved, John finishes his life very well, suffering with patient endurance and bearing testimony of Jesus until the very end. John's greatest truth was that Jesus loved him. And our greatest truth that we can learn from studying the Apostle John is that Jesus loves us too. Jesus' love was not exclusive for John. John's life is simply an amazing testimony to the fact that Jesus loved us first, that he willingly gave his life for each of us, and for those of us that accept it, we have the gift of eternal life. Each of us here today has every reason to call ourselves the disciple Jesus loved. Now, to help us grasp that fact, there are some things that we can do, just like John, that will make us get up every day and know that we are loved by God. I think the first thing that we can do is, just like John, we will understand we're the disciple Jesus loved if we spend time with Jesus every single day. And the truth is that he waits for us every day, and I believe that he's disappointed when our schedules fill up before we get to spend time with him. He tells us in his word that he is always with us, even till the end of the age, waiting to love us with his quality time. Matthew 28, 20, on your verse sheet. And surely I am always with you to the very end of the age. It's on the back of your verse. The next thing we can do to remember that we are the disciple Jesus loved, just like John, is that we should lean back often into the arms of God and enjoy his touch every single day. Now, I know that sounds impossible because we're not with a dinner, at a dinner with Jesus, but we forget what, John, what Jesus tells us in John 14:16 on your verse sheet. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. For he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. God's presence and touch can be a reality for each one of us every day because we are not orphans. And thirdly, to remember that we are the disciple Jesus loved, just like John, we should listen to Jesus' words of affirmation often. That's why we have our Bibles, so that we are never without Jesus' words. When we've had a day that we've been beat up by the world, and I don't know about you, but I have more of them than I care to admit, we need the affirmation of God's love in our life. We need to hear him say, 
that we are his child and that we are loved. And it's all right here in the scriptures. I have an example of one. 1 John 3, 1 on your sheet. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And finally, just like John, Jesus has served us and he has given us a priceless gift that's cost us nothing and Jesus everything in order for our hearts to be like John's and tell us that we are the ones that Jesus loved. All we need to do is to take that gift. Take that gift and remember its cost that Jesus was thinking of us when he purchased it with his blood. Let's pray.